From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Miran Abulsi. French President Emmanuel Macron recently broke a long-held taboo by recognizing the culpability of the French government in the kidnapping and murder of anti-colonial activist Maurice Odin in 1957 in Algiers. Historians have long assumed that Odin died under torture or was executed, and there have been multiple versions of what might have happened. But certainly to have the French president come out and admit not only that Odin was killed at the hands of the French, but also that this was a systematic policy really during the War of Algeria and the Battle of Algiers is a huge moment psychologically and symbolically. We look into the possible motivations behind this bold and historic act by the French president with UC Santa Cruz history professor Miriam Halley Davis, whose research focuses on the French colonial empire and the post-colonial world in the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. Welcome to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, Miriam Halley Davis. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Miriam, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron has in the past few weeks officially recognized the role of the French government in the 1950s in the disappearance, torture, and murder of Maurice Audin, a 26-year-old mathematician in Algiers who was active in the anti-colonial movement in that country. This has made Emmanuel Macron the first French head of state ever to do that. Uh, first, tell us a bit more about the story of Maurice Audin. Who was he? Uh, I can tell you he was a national hero in Algeria, where yes. I grew up. Who was he, and what's the significance of his disappearance back in 1957 during the Battle of Algiers? Right. Yes, as anybody who has been to Algiers will know, where you give one an appointment to have a coffee is the Place Audin. It really is the heart of the city. So Maurice Audin was a math professor, and he taught in Algiers, and he was a militant with the Algerian Communist Party, um, who was supporting the FLN, the Independence Party, fighting against the French at that time. And he was arrested at home, um, and for a long time it was very unclear what exactly had happened. The French state claimed that he had escaped during a transfer from one prison to another, that he had jumped off of a jeep and somehow disappeared into thin air. This, as you can imagine, was not very convincing for many people. But especially um, Maurice Audin's widow, Josette. And from the moment of his disappearance until the present, she has really militated to get to the bottom of this mystery. And when I say mystery, perhaps that's not the right word, because historians have long assumed that Audin died under torture or was executed. And there have been multiple versions of what might have happened. But certainly to have the French president come out and admit not only that Odin was killed at the hands of the French, but also that this was a systematic policy, really, during the War of Algeria and the Battle of Algiers is a huge moment psychologically and symbolically for those who follow Franco-Algerian relations. A few years ago, I had the privilege, the great pleasure, really, of interviewing another of Algeria's great national heroes, the late Henri Alleg, yes. whose book, La Question, 
or the question in English, referring to torture, helped reveal the torture regime in Algeria, and he explained in no uncertain terms how the colonial torture dragnet had captured hundreds of thousands of innocent Algerians, something that to this day France still struggles to officially admit and fails to teach in its history books. Why, in your estimation, is such a historic truth so difficult for the French state to admit? Well, first of all, I'm jealous that you got to interview Aleg and would love to hear more about that. Um, and Aleg was the last person to see Odin alive. Um, he was actually taken into custody just after. And when Aleg got to prison, they showed him Odin to show him the, the effects of torture. By the way, let me interrupt you to yeah. point out to our listeners that both Maurice Odin and Henri Aleg were officially French citizens. They were not among the native Algerians who fought right. for the War of Independence, which makes them in a way even more exemplary because they were not fighting for their own ethnic rights. They were fighting for the rights of the majority of the people in that country. Absolutely. And they were, ap they were incredibly heroic to take such a principled stance, um, not just to reform colonization, as many um, of the French on the left said. We like need Albert to, Camus, for example. Yes. Uh, you know, as Albert Camus and, and others like him said, we need to make colonialism a bit softer. Um, those like Aleg or Odin took a principled anti-colonial stance that was actually quite rare for that time. Um, so that's important to point out. To get to the question of why has this been so taboo for such a long time, the historian in me, which is what I do, which is my day job, would say that we can look at parallels with the Second World War. France took a very long time to admit that Vichy was not just um, something imposed by the Nazi regime, but actually was a homegrown product. And it wasn't until 1995, I think, that Jacques Chirac accepted the exportation um, of Jews from the Valdive uh, Stadium in Paris, where the, they then went east. Some, some 70,000 Jews, I think, in France were so, ca captured and th sent to the camps, to the death camps yeah. of, of the Nazis. So it took over 50 years for that um, to become part of a national consciousness about Vichy. And historians have made certain comparisons between the Algerian War of Independence, um, as historians call it, and uh, France under Vichy. Speaking of the terminology of the war is also interesting. So saying the Algerian War of Independence is not neutral. And until 1999, in legal French parlance, they would call it either the operations or the events. So it wasn't until 1999, that's you know, almost 40 almost years. Almost 40 years later. That the French said this was a war. They weren't going to say what kind of a war, how they fought the war, what kind of violences were inherent in that war, the strategies of that war, but they were willing to call it a war in 1999. So the self-image of France as the universal capital of the rights of man and citizen is something very deep and very important, I think, for the national identity. So coming to terms with these moments of extreme violence, genocide, crimes against humanity, um, is both necessary to think about history and the writing of history books and France's post-colonial issues, which have been many and continue to grow. Um, and it's also important for the people involved, of course, who are seeking some kind of state recognition for the crimes that their families were subjected to. So we see this remarkable schizophrenia. On the one hand, France, the country of enlightening, 
International Declaration of Human Rights, all of those things, and at the same time, this dark side, which is uh, loath to be admitted to come to the fore. Absolutely, and as I tell my students when we start with the French Revolution, we also have to talk about the Haitian Revolution, um, that these forms of colonization um, were part and parcel of thinking about the Enlightenment and racial categories, and what does it mean to be part of the universal? And that's something that I think from 1789 to the present, the French Republic has dealt with in different ways and is still dealing with. Do you think that the fact that Emmanuel Macron is the first president in France to do this sort of thing, to confront the ghosts of the past, do you think that may have something to do with the fact that he was born after this infamous war? Are we witnessing a generational shift, possibly? Absolutely. I think that Macron is um, very young. He's the first president to be born after decolonization um, in the Algerian case. But he's also making this announcement on the heels of his predecessors. Hollande went to Algiers and made you know, typically clumsy remarks. Hollande was not known for his charisma, the former president of France who was with the Socialist Party. And he did recognize the suffering imposed by colonization. He recognized the massacre of 17th of October 1961 when peaceful Algerian demonstrators were rounded up by the police and many drowned in the Seine in River Paris, in yes. Paris. Mm -hmm. um, and he made some kind of awkward remark saying that Odin died in captivity so that he didn't die in a, in a transfer jumping off a jeep. But again, as uh, Josette uh, Audin, the, um, Maurice's widow, said, this was very unconvincing and, and very disappointing to many who looked to Hollande to have a more, a more brave stance. As, as a so-called socialist. As a so-called socialist. So I think Macron, perhaps for generational reasons, also because, as he himself says, we cannot remain trapped in the past. I think that's the motto of the Macron presidency, economically, socially, even in terms of commemoration. So Macron has been able to make much more stark um, and clear statements. And that, I think, is an interesting turn of events, for sure. There was especially galling to the Maghrebi, that's the northwestern African contingent in France, the Algerians, the Moroccans, the Tunisians, that, especially the Algerians, that this recognition that came finally, maybe in the 90s with Chirac, of what had happened to the Jews was denied to those who had just as badly suffered, if not more, you know, if you count numbers, we're not even talking about 70,000 individuals, we're talking about, according to Algeria, a million and a half people who had been completely destroyed and killed during this war. Since 1962, uh, the year when Algeria became independent after 132 years of colonial rule, the demographics of France have drastically changed. There are now perhaps 10% of the population who are Muslim, another 10% from sub-Saharan Africa. Perhaps a quarter or more of the citizenry is either from Africa or Asia by now. This is even more striking in a large metropolitan area like Paris, where you feel like every other Frenchman is, doesn't look quote-unquote French by that old uh, description. Do you think this demographic shift La France black, blanc, beurre, as they like to call it. Uh, France, instead of uh, red, white, and blue. Black, white, and brown. Yes. Uh, do you think that this demographic shift may have, in a way, compelled a movement towards more historical truth 
being recognized in France? I do. I think there's a few things to say about that. One is that the, the composition of who is French has changed, and there is no getting around that. There were a lot of debates this summer, in case the listeners happen to be soccer fans, about the Frenchness of the French national team. And this is something that has haunted France um, since the last World Cup. What does it mean to have a national team um, where you have your star player who is half Algerian, um, Mbappe, I think half Congolese. Half Congolese or Togolese. Or, yeah. um, I'd, have mm. to, I'd have to fact right. check that. But, um, and there were a lot of polemics around whether or not this team was French. And the players themselves actually went out of their way to say, we are playing for France. We are from, most of us are from the banlieue. And their identity as French. The banlieue being the word for suburbs in France, the suburbs have a completely different connotation than they do here. It's yes. not white flight in France. It's the opposite. Those who can't afford to live in the central uh, part of town right. find themselves in the so-called suburbs and, right. and projects, what we would call here projects. Right. And um, they have in recent years been sensationalized by the media as places of crime um, and quote-unquote riots. There, there has been a lot of unrest. Fox News had um, a picture of some of the best areas in Paris, including Montmartre, as a quote-unquote no-go zone. So if you're planning a trip to Paris, <laughs> don't watch Fox News, <laughs> among other reasons. So I think that that's absolutely true. And the Socialist Party has a long history of engaging in sometimes problematic ways with that population since the 1980s, where um, a generation born in France, the so-called movement of the Beurre, um, that being argot or slang for people of um, Maghrebi descent. Yeah, they're Arab called they're, they're called Beurre, which in French means butter. But right. For some reason, they're <laughs> um, associated with butter. These French-born uh, North Africans. And the same way that, you know, to think about France's dis-ease with questions of, of ethnic and racial minorities, you know, when you say um, Jewish in French, among the youth, they won't say juif, they'll reverse it and say fudge, <laughs> right? So there's this notion that um, the youth almost feel as if these categories are so violent that language can help soften them. Um, and the beurre is one that comes out of that, of that moment. And the Socialist Party, to, to many eyes, really co-opted what was a more militant anti-racist struggle and made it into a kind of multiculturalist, softer movement than it initially was. So the history of the left, or even the center-left in France, um, and questions of racial integration certainly have a long history after, after decolonization. Some historians and intellectuals, uh, certainly on the left, but perhaps not just in the left, in France have emphasized the importance of some sort of reconciliation between former colonizer and formerly colonized peoples as a necessary precondition for a more harmonious and safer situation within the boundaries of France. Do you think this might be one of the objectives or motivations of such truth-speaking on the part of the French president? I'm skeptical. Um, if I'm skeptical that this announcement's political goal really was to help boost a sense of harmony in mainland France. I think that it does want to move on from some of these very staid memory wars that for Macron's generation and for my generation don't seem to have meaning. The stakes are not the same. Um, the people involved, um, whether it's those who would have been in the French military um, or the Algerians who fought 
on the side of the French, um, I should perhaps mention that right after his announcement about Maurice Audin, Macron also decided to honor um, 20 former fighters, Algerian fighters, that are known pejoratively as the Archi in France. The traitors. Right, exactly. So By the Algerians. Right. So according to the Algerian state, um, these 150,000 Algerians who fought on the side of the French, for sometimes very complicated reasons, are seen as traitors. Um, and 60,000 of them after the war came to France and were very badly treated by the French state. They were put into camps. They suffered a lot of poverty. They still did not have the rights that other Frenchmen um, did. And so part of dealing with the very contentious aspects of Algerian history has been this question of the Arki, these Algerians who fought on the quote-unquote wrong side. And so Macron, in publicly honoring um, these you know, 20 or some um, former Arki, is also trying to think about that memory and what does that mean. Um, and that came with a 40 million euro um, reparations package as well. So For the Harkis? For, for those individuals and their families. Mm. So the questions of memory of the Algerian war are very, who's Algerian war? That's the question. Because for the Pied Noir, that would be the Europeans who were born in Algeria during French Algeria. And the Jews who were co-opted, the native Jews who became Pied Noir. Right. And then the native Jews who occupied this kind of strange middle ground um, because they did get French citizenship in 1870 under the Cremieux Decree, something that was denied to Muslims until 1958. So there are all of these different groups that have their memory of the war. And when you're writing the history of the Algerian War, it's almost an impossible task because the the question of whose memory and is one supposed to be comprehensive? How does one navigate different nationalist discourses, which are themselves changing? Um, and also, how does one take into account the Algerian Civil War, which makes this all more complicated? Um, Algeria fought a very uh, bloody and violent civil war um, in, in the 1990s when a lot of these tropes of savage violence, of radical Islamism, came up in a way that for a lot of French people reminded them of their memories of the Algerian War of Independence. So it becomes very messy thinking about layers of memory, different kinds of memory, and, and then of course... Over a period of 132 years. Right. Because the last war, the War of Independence, was not the first. Right. There was a conquest that took 50 years to complete of right. Algeria which was the first, some of us call it the genocide, because one out of three Algerians were eliminated. Yeah. Uh, and then there, periodically, every 10 years or so, there was a new rebellion in some part of Algeria. Yeah. So, as you said, Absolutely. that's layer upon layer upon layer of memory. And, and I should mention that Algeria is not Morocco or Tunisia. For those listeners who perhaps are less well-versed with the history, Algeria is a settler colony, which means that by the end of the war, one out of ten of the population were European and had been living there. Um, a lot of them came right in the late 19th century and was legally part of France. So... You know, you have three Algerian departments, the same way you might have a French department of the Rhone region. You have Oran, Constantine, and Alger. So this is not for French, you know, for a French school child looking at a map of France. They are looking at a map of three Algerian departments as part of France, not as the colonie, not as la France d'outre-mer, but as actual France, the way Hawaii would be part of the U.S. on a map today. They went so far as to describe the Mediterranean as a very wide river 
traversing the country of France. Yes, like the Seine. <laughs> like the Seine. The way just the Seine cuts bit, through Paris. Just a little bit wider. Right. Mm. So it's a deep psychological idea to, to confront. So this was surprising in itself, that the French president would actually dare, and I, it mm. has to be called a, a bold decision, regardless of what you think of Macron. Mm. But even more surprising than that, for a neoliberal like Macron, has been some noises he's made in favor of returning national treasures stolen by former colonial powers like France to their rightful owners, the peoples of these former colonies. That was even more unexpected to me. He says that uh, Macron has said that France may return museum artifacts to Africa. Mm. That would certainly be quite unprecedented move, really. Another part of the announcement that has gotten less attention in the media is his call to open up the archives. And as somebody who works with archives right. as my bread and butter, this, of course, interests me. And to what extent those promises will lead to new sources, new physical objects in different museums remains to be seen. But I agree that certainly Macron has a sense He has a sense of the statement, of the event, of the performance of politics. Um, But this sort of utterances really have made him, in that narrow way perhaps, remarkably different, radical, as compared to other colonial uh, empires, the UK or, or what have you. I mean, it's just not done. It's just not done. Uh, unless you are part of a, an empire that was defeated, like mm-hmm. the Germans, right. and who spend their time just, I think, rightly atoning for their atrocities. It just doesn't happen. When you try to force Turkey, for example, to admit the genocide of the Armenians, Turkey right. invariably says, well, how about the French? Right. They've never admitted their right. atrocities, yes, their genocide. <laughs> so basically, no country really likes to admit the darker chapters of its history. Right. This country is another example. Right. It makes this, this, uh, these pronouncements from Macron really, truly remarkable. Yeah, and, and I, I do think that when Macron looks to the southern shore of the Mediterranean, what interests him is no longer France's colonial history, but the actual refugee crisis and questions about economic markets, questions about security, questions about immigration. And so I think he has the ability at this moment where he's really under attack by the left for a lot of quite convincing reasons to offer also certain ways um, of being the candidate that the left wanted, a candidate that could admit, for example, he said that colonization was a crime against humanity. And he came back from that a bit afterwards saying, that he neither wanted to deny nor fall into repentance for France's colonial But only past. as, yeah, because of the strength of the backlash. He also right. mentioned acts of barbarism, right. which is a 180-degree turn from the mission civilisatrice. Absolutely. Because the French ostensibly, officially, were in Algeria to civilize Algeria. Right. That they would admit now, having committed acts of barbarism, again, uh, quite a change. Yeah, and Macron in some ways reminds me of, I work on, for my research, French technocrats who are involved in building the European Union and who are also involved in Algeria. So they both worked with Jean Monnet, working on the European coal and steel community, and were sent to Algeria to help economic, quote-unquote, development there. And to them, whether or not Algeria was French was of less concern than whether Algeria would be a market for the European Union. Um, and so they had a, a different gaze 
towards Algeria than the military did. And I do think that there are different ways to think about the mission civilisatrice, and that's not Macron's way. Macron a civilizing mission. A civilizing mission. And so Macron has been able to make some very bold statements about the colonial past without necessarily taking the implications of those statements into the present. What does that mean for a welfare policy uh, for refugees in France? What does that mean for people issued d'immigration, as the French say, issued from immigration, when these people have lived in France for three generations? And so, you know, that's not just a symbolic question, that's also an economic and social question. And there is where I think Macron's statements have some questions they pose about the state, you know, what France will look like in 2019. In other words, we're not uh, witnessing a fully and completely humanistic approach. He's an interesting paradox, a staunchly neoliberal on the one hand, former Rothschild banker, <laughs> no less, hell-bent on rolling back much of the French social welfare, welfare state. Yes. He's derided in his country as the rich people's president. Right. And yet at the very same time, apparently is on a mission on a mission to recognize France's sordid uh, colonial past uh, in this darkest in some of the darkest manifestations he is not unlike in, in that respect some other neoliberal leaders like uh, Merkel mm. or the Clintons here Obama mm. uh, on the one hand this more relatively speaking more generous view of other peoples, you know, not as overtly racist, not over, as overly sexist, at least in rhetoric, definitely a progressive step towards, you know, something better. On the other hand, their social and economic policies are completely the opposite. They're completely indifferent to the plight of, of regular people. It creates this really interesting paradox. I, I absolutely agree with that. I would say that You know, after Thatcher in England or Reagan in the U.S., after these hardcore neoliberals came to power, we saw kind of Democrats or socialists or labor come towards the center. Um, and I think we're still living the legacy of what that means for, th for those parties that saw themselves on the left. And as you mentioned, Macron's policies, whether it is ending the monopoly um, of the national railway Um, company, the SNCF, or other kind of social safety nets that he's trying to undo, also goes along with his ideas about security and counterterrorism. And there has been, you know, many people on the left feel that the counterterrorism law that he signed gives the government more authority to conduct searches, um, to use certain measures against refugees. And that even though he ended the state of emergency, which had been in place since 2015 with the terrorist attacks in Paris, um, what he did is actually take some of those clauses and put them in the Constitution. So in some ways, making the state of exception part and parcel of the everyday. And to go back to Algeria, which is you know, my love as, as a scholar, the state of emergency in France was invented during the Algerians. In 1955. In 1955. So it's not, I think, by chance that we're seeing certain legal measures that were supposedly exceptional to the rule of law, which now are coming back in a different form in mainland France. 
Um, and we also shouldn't forget that it was the Algerian War that brought down the Fourth Republic. The Fifth Republic in France, which is the current regime of power, comes about with Charles de Gaulle um, saying, I can fix this. I can fix this crisis that's happening um, in Algeria. And so in some ways, the France that we're left with is... Um, is a product of this very violent history. And so I think Macron both is putting it to rest in some ways, um, it, it's certainly in terms of how history will be written. I can imagine school books being, um, being published next year saying, and then Emmanuel Macron recognized the role of the French state in a system of torture and disappearances. But at the same time, with some questions about his own um, economic reorientations of the country. In uh, some of your research, you tackle the interesting and difficult and rather rare topic of the creation of the nation state and how that relates to the history of colonialism. I found that very interesting, especially in this context where today we see people like Donald Trump and others in, in Europe talking about the nation. The nation is, is threatened by all these newcomers. Who are we anymore? And uh, the likes of Steve Bannon deriding people like Clinton or, or Obama as internationalists. They don't really care anymore about the nation state per se, since they are so tolerant towards other people, minorities within their own borders, first of all, but also other people coming from south of the border, etc., etc. Tell us a little bit about this interesting relationship between the concept which was invented by modern European countries of nation-state and the colonial situation that they created at the same time? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I would note a bit as as a side note that Steve Bannon, of course, was then invited by the, for the Front National or the National Front in France as a, as a guest. So France's right is looking to the U.S.'s far right as well. Um, in terms of the nation-state and colonialism, we tend to think of them as diametrically opposed, that once France you know, got rid of its colonies, it could become a nation state. But at least in the history of Algeria, that's much more complicated. Um, when the Treaty of Rome was signed in 1957, Algeria was part and parcel not just of France, but of Europe. So the question was, how do you create a Europe when Europe still has colonies? Um, and it wasn't seen as a zero-sum game yet. It was possible to think about engineering a European geographical and financial unity that included Algeria, especially once gas was discovered and there were various resources, mineral and otherwise, that would have been useful to Europe. So the history of the nation state comes through colonialism. I think it's unthinkable, whether that's thinking about how national identity has evolved or even thinking about the ways that you know, markets um, and trade are organized. A lot of that is worked out in the colony before it comes back and is applied to Europe. I've written a little bit about the common agricultural policy in Europe, which is you know, the cornerstone of the European Union, as it, we would now call it. Back then, it was the European Economic Community. And the French are wondering, what do we do with all of these countries that have their own economic structures, their own agricultural structures? And some of the technocrats say, we had to figure this out in Algeria, actually. What do we do with different regions? How do we deal with standardization? How do we distribute crops across space? So I think thinking about the genesis of the nation state through colonialism um, is very important. And yet it's counterintuitive, as you were saying, because it's largely 
defined this nation state uh, in opposition to these other people who are not from this geographical area. So how do you reconcile those two things evolving at the same time? This link that you're making between the two phenomena, the, the birth of the nation state and the same time the expansion of a colonial empire. Right. How did that work in the past? And the implications today are, are clear that there's a, a strong either contradiction or paradox right. <laughs> between the two. And surely um, when France was going through po post-war reconstruction, it was more than happy to have North African laborers to come and rebuild France. Um, and there was an enormous amount of immigration, both after World War II and after decolonization. Um, the problem started when those single male workers wanted to live in France, did not want to go back, and ended up having families. And so there is a way in which right, labor markets also create um, certain forms of acceptable immigration. And right now, this notion that um, it's a zero-sum game between colonial or post-colonial subjects and economic development is a function of the times that we're living in, I think. That certainly was not how it was seen in the 50s and 60s. Angela Merkel has paid dearly for her pretty explicit notion that, yeah, we do need these people. Our, our population is growing old. Yep. We have a very successful economy. We need more workers. And some of these Syrians who are martyrized in their own country, they're welcome. You know, they're educated. They're hardworking. Right. We do want them. Of course, the backlash that followed is more reminiscent of what's happening in this country and other countries where a lot of the Germans are saying, please, no more. We don't want these different people who speak different languages, have different religion, right. et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that Merkel recently was in Algeria, first of all, and she met with Algerian high-ranking members of the government um, who agreed to basically take back the Algerians who were in Germany illegally. Um, I think they agreed to take in up to 5,000 Algerians who lived in Germany. And so... We should also look at how Merkel and Macron, I think they, they share a, a similar vision um, of the immigration crisis, are asking North African countries and African countries to take on some of the burden, quote unquote. Um, they want Algeria, Morocco to start patrolling their own borders so that Europe doesn't have to do it, externalizing the threat. And in the Algerian case, that has meant, um, you know, unfortunately, taking these refugees and, and putting them into the desert. Right. So there have been kind of horrendous stories of, I think, as many as 30,000 people since 2014 dying in the Sahara. We think of the Mediterranean as what's killing refugees, but actually the desert um, is in some ways even more, is even more dangerous. And so I think that the future of Europe and those who are pro-Europe, like Macron and Merkel, do hinge on the question of what happens in the refugee crisis. And Macron is at least very aware of this. Um, just today, the refugee vessel, um, the Aquarius, which has been staffed by various NGOs, um, predominantly French, is back in Marseille without a flag because the Panama government took away its registration. Um, and this vessel in particular is important because it's been the subject of a lot of political maneuvering between Salvini in Italy, Macron in France, and Macron who refused initially to let it come to Marseille 
to dock when it had 58, I believe 58, refugees on board. And, it, and eventually the solution was found. It went to Malta and then various European countries um, welcomed a certain quota of refugees. But this is the question that he is undoubtedly thinking about with European elections coming up. So I think that he is very aware of both the critiques he's getting on the left and the backlash on the right. As kind of commonsensical as his announcement seems to somebody who does Algerian history, people on the right, like Eric Zemmour, came out and said that Odin would have deserved 12 bullets in the head. I mean, it's unthinkable, the reaction of the far right to such a what seems commonsensical announcement about something that we knew. But for the far right, including Marine Le Pen, these people were traitors, and they continue to be traitors. So it's a very scary, polarized climate, both in terms of economic policies, but even on the symbolic level of patriot versus traitor. Some in France suspect Macron's, uh, part of at least part of his motivation, was to try to throw a bone to the left, because he hasn't done much of that. And during his campaign, what uh, he claimed made him different, among other things, was that he was both left and right or neither of the above, yeah. when he turned out to be really very much of the right and the right and the right. Yes. So this, according to these critics, would be one way that he uh, reminds people, look, I'm not completely on the right, I'm also on the left, and what do you have to say to that? Yeah, I, and I do think as much as the neither left nor right slogan is infuriating to those of us on the left who do believe that there is actually an economic um, and social program that the left has stood for in France since the end of the Second World War, he's not wrong in that the categories of left and right are being rewritten in very fundamental ways, I think, not just in Europe, but in the United States. And the, the articles that I saw here, which were basically saying, well, if the far left, that being Marine Le Pen, the National Front, or the far left wins, Mélenchon, the kind of historically communist candidate of, um, of the left front win, it's the same thing. Right? And of course, it's not the same thing. But there is a sense at which people are so confused by the political categories and the fact that political parties, the Socialist Party, is in complete disarray. The Communist Party um, was renamed um, right, the Left Front, and then La France Insoumise, or Unrepentant France. So what does one do in this political landscape is confusing, and I don't know that the categories of left and right, as they've been experienced in France, make as much sense as they did 10 years ago. I think largely due to the complicity between the so-called left in countries like the U.S. and France, the Democrats are invariably described as left, left compared to Attila the Hun <laughs> or Trump. But And the complicity of the media, which are also very interested in confusing things and yes. portraying what is genuine left as far, far left, as right. just as dangerous and crazy as the populists on the right. Yes. That yes. hasn't attained this confusion. Someone like François Hollande, who came before Macron, was actively engaged in that deception. Right. He, during the campaign, he said famously, I am the worst nightmare of those banks. You know, those right. bankers right. hate my guts right. because I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Just as Hillary Clinton was claiming to to be against Wall Street. As soon as he came to power, he completely changed his uh, his tune yes. and did the the work of the right under the pretense of being a socialist. Right. So no wonder people in France or in this country 
are confused about these categories which have been emptied out. Yeah, and I will say that um, this French socialist candidate who ran in 2017, Benoit Hamon, ran, a, I thought, a very good campaign. I thought that he had intelligent things to say economically, socially. He was much more open to questions about the headscarf, about integration. But I think he got around 6% of the vote. And that shows you to what extent running under the Socialist Party banner has become um, really a liability in France. Uh, the Socialist Party, there's been a lot of speculation about its future, um, and certainly it is no longer the force that it once was in politics as these shoot-offs emerge, right? En marche, which is Macron's party, forward, forward right? Yeah. So yes, leave history behind. <laughs> we are all heading to a good consumerist neoliberal future, and um, to each person their own entrepreneurial desire, really. So to close, we're almost uh, done, but this intriguing question for me of the nation state and what is becoming as, as we speak, you know, what all the different contradictions that are coming to question the very concept. On the one side, you have those people who, under the banner of nation state, would go back to fascism. I mean, literally fascism. We have fascist uh, government right now. I don't think it's an exaggeration to to call it that. On the other side, you have people who are milder in terms of culture, in terms of uh, gender, in terms of sexual orientation, uh, in terms of race as well, much less, much less focused on, races, on the cat racial categories. But they're doing the, the bidding of the right and the extreme right by having this completely fanatically closed uh, quasi-religious stands towards the economy. When uh, 2008 happened, uh, who was bailed out in an extreme emergency, whether it was Bush or Obama, it was the same government. Right. It was the Bush, I called it in my, one of my political cartoons, I called it the Bush-Obama administration. That didn't make a difference. Bush-ama. The Bush-ama. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think this notion of nation state, where is it headed in, in the yeah. current context? Yeah, and I think that in Europe, at least, it's quite clear that the European Union, as it exists, has many, many people who are unhappy. And the question of reasserting the nation state is really to what ends. So when you have somebody on the far right, like Marine Le Pen, who talks about reasserting the nation state, what she really means by that primarily is immigration. Right. To her, the nation state, and I don't think that that's that far off from Trump, that the nation state is something that is an ethnic identity we need to protect. It's a linguistic, as you said, quasi-religious, right? the notion of Christian Europe. Whereas for people on the far left, and we could talk about Mélenchon, maybe Bernie Sanders, maybe Corbyn, we could you know, put these guys in a, in a wide kind of tent. The problem is the movement of capital. The problem is less about ethnic purity and it's more about the fact that, at least in Europe, Europe has become a space of competition and not cooperation. So there's a kind of race to the bottom where you know countries like Greece uh, had very little solidarity by other European nations during the crisis. So the future of the nation state in these larger economic units has to be rethought. Um, but how it is rethought, I think, has will be along the lines of both the movement of capital and markets, as well as population transfers um, and security issues that are you know, quite new since the Second World War. We haven't seen this kind of a refugee crisis and movement of populations that are forced. Muriam 
Halle Davis is an associate professor of history at UC Santa Cruz. Her work focuses on development, decolonization, and race in North Africa. She's currently working on a manuscript that studies how the post-war reinvention of a market economy influenced prevailing ideas of race and national identity in Algeria. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Henri Alec, who came to worldwide prominence in 1958 after the publication of his book, The Question on the Systemic Torture the French Colonial Regime in Algeria Inflicted, was born in England in 1922, the son of an Ashkenazi Jewish couple that had immigrated to France while he was a child. At the age of 18, wanting to travel the world, on his way to Australia, he stopped in Algiers, where he remained, eventually becoming a public school teacher. Remarkably, for a European, Alec, who would later become a member of the Algerian Communist Party, felt closer to the indigenous population of Algeria than to his fellow Europeans who had colonized that country, instinctively identifying with the oppressed population and later joining the struggle for independence. Mr. Alec passed away on July 17, 2013, here an excerpt of Khalil Bendib's 2008 conversation with Mr. Alec about his arrest and torture in the hands of French paratroopers during the Algerian War of Independence. After your newspaper, Alger Républicain, was eventually banned, after many years of increasing censorship, you found yourself on a list of wanted radicals and managed to hide for a period of many months by playing hide-and-seek games with the police and constantly moving from secret address to secret address. But you were eventually arrested and tortured by the French authorities in Algeria. Tell us a little bit about that experience. How did they treat you and why did they torture you? Yeah, uh D'abord, je dois vous dire que le journal a été interdit septembre 1955. Comme vous le savez, le début de l'insurrection dans l'Ores, dans le Constantinois, a commencé en le 1er novembre 1954. Well, first I must say that my newspaper, The Algier Republican, was banned in September of 1955. As you know, the insurrection in the East started in November of 1954, so it took less than a year for the situation to become so difficult for the colonial authorities that they felt compelled to stop the only newspaper which was refusing to rally around the official positions, which was that the whole country of Algeria wanted to stay under colonial rule. But there was a small band of terrorists, does that ring a bell? who were demanding something else than status quo. And therefore, 
the French armed forces had to exterminate these terrorists because that was in the so-called best interest of both Algeria and France. That's when they started these systematic raids on Algerian militants, including innocent civilians who weren't active but did not necessarily agree with the official party line. With all that, it became clear that people like me had to go into hiding to avoid being caught and to continue the struggle. And that's what I did. I went underground. I survived underground by trying to work for certain newspapers in France, writing and sending out news reports under fake names. Finally, I was arrested in June 1957 and tortured. I must say that the exercise of torture was not exceptional in my case. There were tens of thousands of Algerians, perhaps even more, who were arrested and immediately subjected to torture. Why did they torture all these people? Because the army thought that this was the only way to identify and locate all activists who were fighting colonial domination and that this would allow them to eradicate them. That's what happened to me. They tortured me because they knew I had important responsibilities within the Algerian Communist Party. The Communist Party was deeply involved in the struggle, and by torturing me, they thought they would be able to force me to say where other militants and leaders were hiding. These forms of torture they used on me were textbook forms, and I'd previously heard about these forms of torture, as had many Algerians who had had a chance to talk to activists who'd experienced them even before the insurrection had started. So it was electrodes, which is now back in vogue as we hear about in Iraq these days, waterboarding and burning with torches and cigarettes. In my case, they also used a truth serum, but I think that was probably very rare. I've only heard of one other instance where this serum was used on other militants because, in the end, the French weren't sure the serum worked, and it took a lot of medical equipment, plus you needed a physician to be present to survey the whole thing. You had to inject just enough, but not too much, and so on. And so this wasn't a method that was efficient for a war where you had to move very fast and secure intelligence immediately. So I was tortured like everybody else, I'd say, but with this difference. When I arrived at the prison and saw one of my friends who was an attorney, he said to me, look, with all you've been through, you need to write and record all of this stuff. I told him, you must be out of your mind. You don't realize under what conditions we're being detained. We were treated really as if we had no rights at all. For my part, for three years, I was in the infamous Barbarousse prison. I never had any bed or blanket or chair or even a table or a mirror. We were in conditions of complete lack of anything that might have allowed us to survive, never mind the atrocious conditions of the meals and hygiene. There was in each cell a hole on top of which was a faucet, and that was all the sanitary equipment that was available to us. We were shaved once a week by a barber, a fellow inmate who shaved all inmates with the same blade over and over again. No mirrors, no sinks, no nothing. I still wonder how I managed not to catch all sorts of diseases in such conditions. My lawyer was absolutely adamant that I had to write all of this down. I told him it's impossible, but this guy insisted, saying, look, frankly, you're the only one who can record this stuff, not just because you can write when 90% of inmates are illiterate and French isn't their language, and they have as much trouble writing in their own language anyway. In other words, it's your job to do it. So with the help of some friends, I managed to write this text, 
But I didn't write it in one piece. I had to evacuate these notes somehow, and I wrote them on a school notebook, four pages by four pages at a time. Then I had to somehow get the four pages out of there. Whenever a lawyer came to the prison and I had an opportunity to see this lawyer, I'd give him these pages, which I had hidden on my body, in my loafers or in my underwear, until I had to pass the regular searches at the hands of the guards, some of whom searched you very carefully, others less carefully, but it was still quite risky. Anyhow, somehow, I managed to spirit out the entire book, bit by bit, and in France, where my wife herself had been exiled and deported from Algeria. My wife would receive these pages, and she typed them. She distributed them to all French newspapers, not just Humanité, the communist French newspaper, and Liberation, another left newspaper, which were the only ones to first publish the book in installments. But I had written another text, a letter of complaints, which I had sent out, and which had reached France before the book La Question, and these editions of the two daily newspapers were consequently banned. In France, this was an extremely rare occurrence. Why would the French government do that? In time, the word got out that there was a text by me and that this text had to do with torture, which was very alarming to the French government. The book was then published. My wife, who was very active, along with my lawyer, had presented this book to a number of publishers, all of whom said the same thing. This book absolutely needs to be published. It's a must, but of course, you understand that in the current political climate, Publishing such a book myself would jeopardize my entire company. You'll forgive me, but I can't publish this myself. They all said the same thing. In other words, none of them was willing to be a kamikaze, and there was finally only one who decided that it was his duty to publish the book, Jerome Linden, who had fought in the French resistance against fascism and was one of the founding members of the publishing house Editions des Minuit, which under German occupation had illegally published texts and poems by Aragon and other anti-fascist poets of the resistance. So this man, in keeping with his beliefs, decided to go ahead and take that big risk. To defend his ideas of what France really stood for, he published it. But the French government, after 60,000 had already sold, made the stupid decision to ban the book, which naturally was an incredible publicity coup for the book, as everyone was wondering, why are they banning it? And since it was very thin and very small and easy to copy, many, including people of simple means, decided to republish this book on their own, in magazine form or whatever, in total illegality. And it was distributed at tens of thousands of copies throughout France, it was also translated first in the Francophone countries, Belgium, Switzerland, and many of those books crossed the border back into France. So the question many French started asking themselves was, we're told this is a war for the sake of civilization with a capital C. It was a war against criminals and terrorists, but here was the true face of this war. It was a colonial war, and there was this pretense that this war was for the sake of freedom and civilization. And it was not simply an idea that was in the air, but people like André Malraux, François Mauriac, Sartre, Nobel Prize winners, who wrote the president of France to ask him to explain these charges I was making against the French military. If this man isn't telling the truth and is lying, they said, you need to try him for defamation. And if what he says is the truth, it's even worse. That means that our actions in Algeria need to be questioned and challenged. So that's how this book had a tremendous impact. 
And in some way, you asked me how did I stay alive, I think I owe it to the enormous publicity around my name and around the name of Maurice Auden, a comrade of mine who was a professor at Algiers University. I was in the same underground network as he, and he was tortured and most likely died under torture. And they disguised his murder as an attempt to escape, which was, of course, so ridiculous and so ludicrous. At the same time, progressives, anti-colonialists, and especially the people who knew me and knew of me as a journalist, and with the help of my wife and our friends, saved me, not just by the publicity around the book, but also by what had happened before my blowing the whistle on torture and all that. You just heard an excerpt of the interview with the late French journalist Mr. Henri Alleg about his arrest and torture by French military during the war for Algerian independence. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Algeria, <laughs>